1994, in my second year in the Marine Corps, I was given orders to a base on Oahu, Hawaii. Yes, I know I got the hardship tour of all the places I could go. Now, this was a big move because for the first 15 months of my time in the Marines, I was at various schools getting training in my what they called MOS. In the civilian world, that would be just your job. What was my Marine job going to be? Well, making the transition from schools to what they call the fleet is a big move. And like all Marines going to the fleet for the first time, I was nervous. Additionally, I was not your average Marine. I was a pretty visible Christian, outgoing, doing my best by God's grace to live for him, to shine the light of Jesus in the Marine Corps, which can be a pretty dark place if you've never been or if you know people who have been in the military or in the Marines. Also, um, I had had a really successful and effective ministry uh, opportunity in my schooling, and I had met a lot of people and had a lot of uh, success just in helping people come back to the Lord or encounter Jesus for the first time. So making this transition was a whole new world and a little scary for me. I was nervous about finding a church. I wondered if God would connect me with other believers at this new location where he had done at previous locations. So there I was one July, warm July morning walking up to my new company in Hawaii 26 years ago, being the brand new guy. Well, word about my faith preceded me. Don't know exactly how, but I guess when you're willing to, to stand up for what you believe in, people find out about it. Anyway, then the first couple minutes, this very friendly and outspoken Marine named Clark came up and began talking with me. Not just that, but he said that he had heard that I was a Christian. And he began asking me questions about my faith. And then he began sharing about his faith. I was thrilled. He was outspoken. He was bold. That's such an issue and a, and, a, and a struggle for a lot of believers. And everybody around there was hearing him talk about you know, his church experience. And I was like, yes, Lord, thank you. He shared about his Baptist church growing up in Florida. He talked about his decision to uh, believe and get baptized. He said and did everything you hoped a fellow believer would in that moment. And I was thrilled. I had left a great group of Christians and believers when I came to Hawaii. And here I felt like the Lord had prepared the way by introducing me to Clark on my first day. Well, later that morning, I was coming back from an assignment where I had to go out and take care of some things. And as I came back to that same gathering place outside our company headquarters, Clark was sitting there with another group of Marines. But this time, things were very different. The same guy who had just proclaimed Jesus boldly and loudly, who had really encouraged me, who was, was now, in this moment, a couple hours later, talking about his drunken night at the bar over the weekend, and the multiple women he had been with. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. He continued telling his tales, and he said some vile and wicked things in the minute or two that I was listening. Things that if I said today would make me and some of you blush. My heart sank. I was so sad. And I was also angry. This guy had just been singing Sunday school songs during our conversation earlier, talking about Jesus. And now in this conversation, acting in this way, he was bringing incredible shame upon himself, though he didn't think so, and tarnishing the name of Jesus Christ, which he had just proclaimed openly and said he believed in. Worst of all, the men and women who were around him, they didn't bat an eye. Evidently, this was normal. For Clark. 
And in spite of many, many evenings of our group of believers, which I did eventually find that we would pray a couple nights a week out in the, what they called the beer garden, we turned into the prayer garden, for the lost Marines there on the base, a number of people came to faith, but I don't know of anybody that knew Clark personally that ever responded to the gospel of Jesus. To this day, I'm convinced that his false Christianity poisoned the well with many Marines and left the true believers who were there trying to witness powerless with little credibility in our own faith and our own witness. In spiritual terms, this was a disaster. Because of his false Christian religion, he dishonored the Lord and was used by the enemy to drive people away from Jesus instead of drawing them toward him. And the situation with Clark is not unlike the situation in the days of Isaiah. If you haven't been with us, we're talking about the prophet Isaiah roughly 2,600 years ago. God had set his nation Israel apart to be a light to the nations. The nation of Judah was the southern half of the nation of Israel, which was still intact. The northern nation had been conquered and sent away. And the people of Judah were supposed to reveal the beauty and glory of God through their faith and devotion to God, through being his people. But that was not happening. On the contrary, the people of Judah were acting wickedly and were bringing about their own national disaster. And that is the name of our current sermon series in the book of Isaiah here at Rooftop Church, National Disaster, Judah's Sins. And the sin this morning that we're going to be talking about is false religion. Now, what is religion? I want to talk about that real briefly because it can be defined as so many things. Well, the definition that we'll use is pretty simple and straightforward. It's this. It is the belief in God and the faithful practices of his laws and commands. This is what Israel promised to do towards God, and this is what God expected from his people Israel. False religion then would be what? It would be not being faithful to your belief in God, nor practicing his laws and his commands. In Israel's case, however, they acted the right way. They were practicing the right things in many ways, but their actions were insincere, what we would call hypocritical. Now, it's important to understand that religious behavior was the most important aspect of life in Israel. What's the most important aspect of our life? Our job, our money, income, how we look, our status, the friends we keep. It could be any number of things in our current world. But in the days of Israel, the most important status, aspect of life with regard to your status was your religiosity and how you practiced religion. And this created a problem. As a transplant from out of town, it'd be, let me see if I can find a corollary for here in St. Louis. It'd be like moving to St. Louis and not cheering for the Cardinals, even though you may not like them. You just go along, yay, go Cards. Because Lord knows none of us want to be treated like Cubs fans, right? So, if don't that helps kind of bridge the gap for you. For Israel, what did this mean? Well, it meant going to the temple. Now, what is the temple? God had Israel build a building where he would physically dwell and where he could be worshipped. It's similar to this church building, but much more extravagant, expensive, vast. This was called the temple. 
It involved making sacrifices, which we're going to read about. Well, what are sacrifices? Well, sin was a problem then, just like it is today. And this is before Jesus Christ came. And before Jesus, God had said, if you sin, you need to kill an animal of some kind, offer a sacrifice so that your sins could be forgiven. And he commanded the death of an animal or a creature so that we would understand just how terrible sin was, amongst other reasons. It involved quoting, memorizing, quoting the Torah. The Torah is the holy book of Israel. It, involved, it uh, contains the first five books of the Old Testament that we have today. And you would memorize it, you would quote it. This was another religious practice that the people of Judah would do. Keeping the Sabbath was also huge in the life of Israel. Six days we worked, but on that seventh day, we devoted that to the Lord. We didn't work. We didn't do all the things that we would normally do for ourselves one day of the week, that one day of the week we would not do those, we would not work, we would rest, and we would devote that day to the Lord. Now our goal here is not to show how the Old Testament and its laws and practices, which I just described, were wrong. And that what we do as New Testament believers in the covenant that Jesus brought is better or right. That's not the case, actually. The law of the Old Testament was beautiful. And while not yet completed and fulfilled until Christ came, the commands of God and the ceremonial worship in the Old Testament were a blessing to God. And they brought God joy and pleasure. In fact, it's often described as a fragrance pleasing to God. However, Judah was not pleasing to God, but they were guilty of practicing a false religion. They were doing these things, but God knew it was fake. False and empty. And we are reading and studying this today because we are people just like them. And our religion here, even at Rooftop Church, can become fake, false, and empty. So we need to hear Isaiah and let the Holy Spirit speak to each of our hearts as we hear what Isaiah was saying to the people of Israel in his day. If you have your Bibles, we're in Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10, or you can follow along on the screen. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense, incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of our deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
All right, well, let's start in verse 10. Isaiah comes out of the gate fast. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. How many of you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? If you don't, you can check out afterwards in Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah are considered some of the worst cities ever to have existed on the face of the earth, in the history of the world. In fact, they were so bad, their conduct was so bad, they were so evil and wicked that God judged them in Genesis 19 with fire from heaven. So how does God start out his statement to his people? He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Do I have your attention yet? He continues into our first point in verse 11. He says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? And this gives us our first point, which is this. The more is not the merrier. The more is not the merrier. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. The numbers of trips to the temple or the volume, the total number of sacrifices that Israel is making means nothing to God. Numbers mean a lot to us, but in this instance, they mean nothing to God. God is fed up. He says very clearly, I do not delight in them. In this instance, the number of times or the regularity of their worship practices is not pleasing God. It's not producing righteousness in the life of his people, which should be, if we're his people, produce, producing righteousness. Now, Judaism was filled with all sorts of activities and actions that you could do over and over again and again, like I described earlier in the message. All religions are like this. They all have their practices. And God is saying through Isaiah that it appears as if the person doing these practices is religious and pious, but I know better. I know that all of you who do these religious things are actually not sincere, not real in your faith and your fervency. In verse 11, the Lord refutes the idea that the numbers or repetitious religious expression, which is such a common thing in the day, had any value at all. The more is not the merrier. And then he complains about them trampling his courts in verse 12. And what does he mean by trampling the courts? Well, all the people's feet and all the animals that they're bringing. The temple's filled as it should be with people and animals because that's what faithful people do. He says, why do you trample my courts? Because he's calling out their hypocrisy. This is fascinating. Let's think about this. For centuries, God has been warning his people Israel about false religion. Isaiah is not the first prophet that God has sent them to come along and tell them this. And yet their response is not to listen to the prior prophets. Their response is to continue doing the same things they've been doing, continuing in their empty religious practices. What might this look like in our world for you and I today? We love that you're here. We want you to be here. But attending rooftop church every week could be an empty religious practice. It could be an effort to impress God. It could be an effort to, to make right the wrong I did earlier in the week, to kind of balance the scales, if you will, fulfill some obligation that you feel to God or that we feel as Christians. 
We might currently be involved in some illicit or dishonorable relationship that does not please God. It's what we want, but we know it's not honoring to God. But we won't stop. We come to church, we serve, we do good works, we hope to gloss over the bad with more good. But we have no intention of changing. We might be stuck in an addiction, alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, lying. And we aren't dealing with it or asking someone for help where we feel powerless to deal with it. But we keep coming. We keep going through our religious practices. These activities and actions, going to church, giving money, joining a small group, these are all good things. But no matter how much we do them, they do not merit righteousness in the eyes of God. That's our first point. Isaiah continues into our second point in verse 13. He says it straight up. Bring no more vain offerings. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. The Lord's weary of receiving them. Wow. How can Judah's offerings be vain? Well, by vain here, the word, another definition or, or translation would be meaningless. The offerings are meaningless. And this is our second point. Religion is meaningless without sincerity of heart, or what I like to call wholeheartedness. Serving God with a whole heart, with a sincere heart. Isaiah says it in verse 13, no more vain offerings. Whether it's bulls, lambs, birds, wheat, whatever the offering of the day, God does not want them. Going through the motion of religious practice without our hearts being fully devoted to him is something that God does not want. He doesn't want meaningless offerings. This problem was still rampant 600 years later when Jesus was walking the earth. In Matthew 15, 8, after watching the Pharisees especially, but people go through the motions, Jesus says these words, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, this issue of being sincere at heart, wholehearted. The people of Israel were still committing the same sins, false religion, hundreds of years after Isaiah said these words when Jesus himself walked the earth. Let's take the command to honor the Sabbath, for example, which was huge in the day of Israel. Now, not many of us know what it means to even honor the Sabbath, honestly. Did you know it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments? To honor the Sabbath is the fourth of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. I don't do a good job, honestly, of honoring the Sabbath, exactly what I'm supposed to do or not do, what that's supposed to mean. But that was not the case for the Israelites. The Sabbath was a huge deal for them. And Isaiah addresses this later in this book in chapter 58 when he gives us these two verses, verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. 
I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What are these verses saying exactly? Quote, turn back from doing our pleasure on his holy day, end quote. God has asked Israel to set one day apart for him. And this is not to be a chore. It's to be a delight. This is not a burden that they can't do something on Sunday. It's a privilege that they get to stop doing something on Sunday and just give a day to the Lord. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. And it's not torture to us. Unless you forget about that and drive to the drive-thru at 8.30 at night and it's dark and you wonder, why aren't they open? The reason Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday is because the founder is a believer and he wanted to honor God and honor his employees by giving them time off to be with the family. They sacrifice a lot of money if they were open on that seventh day, but money is not the ultimate objective with the company. Again, not going our own ways or seeking our own pleasure on the Sabbath or on any day in general because he talks about the second thing in this passage, which is delighting in the Lord. And delighting in the Lord is important when we're dealing with the, the idea of insincere worship. Why is our worship insincere? Because it probably lacks a fact, a capacity of delighting in God. When we delight in something, we are wholehearted into it. We are not insincere. How are we delighting in the Lord today as you're here at rooftop? Church can be good. It can be part of delighting in God. But is it your delight to be here this morning? Are you delighted to be here in obedience to God, in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is it just, it's Sunday, it's what I do. I set the alarm, I get up, I shower, I go. How do we delight in the Lord? What about God delights you? Is it the singing of the songs? Whether here together as a group of people or on your own singing worship songs to the Lord? Is it getting outside and enjoying creation? Some people are wired to enjoy, they, they just get inspired by the creative world around them and see God revealed in that. Maybe delight for you comes from the Bible, from God's word. That, believe it or not, can bring you joy. Have you ever tried to enjoy God by reading his word? Not looking at it simply as an instruction manual. Not looking at it so that I know the commands I'm supposed to follow so I don't mess up and ultimately disobey God. But approaching the word of God with the intent and with the hope of enjoying him through time spent with him in his word. The Bible has played a huge role in my life and spiritual journey. My joy in the word has gone up and down over the years. It's not stayed at a, at a level up here. Life happens. In fact, one of my greatest times of enjoyment was when I graduated. I had recently recommitted my life to the Lord, and I graduated high school, and my home church gave me this new, this new Testament and Psalms Bible. It was small. It was compact. I could put it in my pocket. I loved it. But the print wasn't too small that I couldn't read it quickly, right? It was perfect. And my buddy Todd got that as well because he graduated with me. And we read that over and over. I don't know how many times I read over that New Testament. I didn't know where something was located necessarily, chapter and verse or book, but I could remember, oh, I read that this far in, at this point in the page. That's how familiar I was with this book. I enjoyed hearing from God through that Bible. 
And little did I know that doing so would change my life forever. Those hours spent reading, seeking God in his word, have blessed me more than I could ever imagine. It truly felt like a piece of heaven on earth for those 15, 30, 60 minutes, or whatever I could carve out of my day to read and spend time with him. I'm so grateful the Holy Spirit gave me delight in his word. I encourage you, if you're missing some delight, give his word a try with a prayer asking him to help you delight in it. Going back to Jesus' statement in Matthew and Isaiah's proclamation, as far as our hearts being far from him, we continue in verse 15 with our third point. Isaiah says this to the people of Israel. When you spread out your, again, he's talking about them in the temple doing their worship thing. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And he's not talking about the blood of the sacrifice. What does it mean that their hands are full of blood? Picture this. A faithful Jew in Judah, in the temple courts, sacrifice, burning, now offering prayers to God, lifting their hands to heaven as a sign of worship, which is what you did in the temple. And God declares that these hands, lifted high to be holy to the Lord, are full of blood. Blood symbolizing the guilt of their sins, sins that have not been repented of, that have not been brought humbly before the Lord. Our third and final point this morning that Isaiah is talking about false religion is this. False religion happens when our unrepentant sins leave us guilty before God. When our unrepentant sins leave us guilty before God, leave us with hands full of blood. Regardless of any religious expression, religious activity, church attendance, money given, fill in the blank, unless our sins are truly forgiven, our offerings and our sacrifices given to God are ultimately rejected by him. He does not receive our offerings and our service if our sins have not previously or in that moment also been confessed to him in repentance. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 24, in the Sermon on the Mount, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or your sister, and then come and offer your gift. First be reconciled, repent, then come and offer your gift. But what helps bring our hearts back to God? Repentance. Repentance. So this morning, obviously, we're religious people. We're here practicing religion. The question needs to be asked, what sins linger in our hearts this morning? What is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind now or thus far in this service? Do we have a grudge or offense against somebody that is not addressed or forgiven? We need to obey the words of Jesus and deal with that immediately. Are we caught in some kind of sin or hiding something that is eating away at our spirit and soul? We need to repent of that and bring it into the light. God wants to forgive us and take away the burden of our sin from us. Time and again, the Lord says, repent and turn away from sin. Then come into my house and worship me. First, Isaiah says that going to church and doing a lot of good things, doing them over and over is not important to God. Second, 
God calls out the insincerity of their religious actions, what they do, they don't really mean, or find joy in God in the doing of them. And thirdly, when they act religious, they are still harboring sin in their hearts with hands full of blood. And this leads us to our main point, our big idea this morning, and it's this. When it comes to religion, humility and repentance is the religion that pleases the Lord. Humility and repentance is the religion that pleases the Lord. Doing religious stuff is not enough. For Judah in Isaiah's day, it was visiting the temple, offering sacrifices, honoring the Sabbath. For us, it could be going to church, doing good works, serving the poor. But none of it means anything without humility and repentance. Humility and repentance is the religion that pleases the Lord. Humility before God is where the sincerity comes from. It what adds meaning to the actions that we do, that first point. It turns our half-hearted or barely-hearted pursuit of the Lord into a wholehearted effort. Humility before God brings a natural and needed sincerity to our relationship with Him and our, relation, our, our interaction with Him. And then repentance addresses the third point. Our blood-stained hands, even though we're doing the right things, we're still guilty of our sins, repentance is what allows those hands to be washed clean. We end in this passage in verse 18, and that's where we're going to close this morning. Let's look at verse 18 together. This is what God says through Isaiah to his people, just nine verses after calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. He says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the forgiveness God is talking about. But it only comes through repentance. If we want to be washed white as snow, having the guilt washed away, we need to repent and trust in not an animal sacrifice in their day, but in the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ for his day and for every day thereafter for eternity. We have Jesus Christ today to trust and believe in. Ironically, the crimson red blood of Jesus that was flowing down his beaten body washes away the crimson stains of sin in our own lives. What a beautiful, beautiful poetic statement Isaiah makes for us. Humility of heart and repentance, trusting in Christ alone, is the religion that pleases the Lord. And here this morning, we need to exchange the false religion that Judah was guilty of and that we too are guilty of so often. We need to exchange that and embrace humility and repentance, which brings the grace of God in Jesus Christ into our lives. And it turns our hollow worship into sincere, wholehearted devotion to God. Worship that blesses him and brings him great pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Isaiah's harsh words. They're hard words. They were hard words for the people of his day to hear, and they can be really hard words for us religious people to hear as well. But we're grateful for them. Because our goal is not piety. Our goal is not religious perfection. Our goal is not to do more good on the scale than bad. The goal is humility before you. 
and repentance, a sincerity of heart. And this morning I pray, I just invite all of us to come to a place to just humble ourselves right now in this quiet moment and just to begin humbling ourselves and, and, and repenting, listing the false religion, the sins that keep us from truly honoring you. You have given us Jesus. You've put your son up on a cross. You massacred his body. Blood flowed so that our crimson stains could be washed clean through his crimson blood. And that can happen here this morning as well. I pray, I pray that each of us would come out of our bunkers our spiritual bunkers that we've put up to protect ourselves and we would expose ourselves to the light realizing that you love us and you have made a pathway to be restored with you through repentance and through humility. And I pray for those who are stuck this morning, stuck in some kind of sin and some kind of place where they know they're not pleasing you but they don't know what else to do. I pray that they might step out. I pray that they might come and speak to me by the table afterwards. They might find Matt, find Skylar, find Jason. Find somebody at rooftop maybe who brought them here and say, hey, I need to talk to somebody. Can you help me? We don't want our worship to be empty, to be vain, and to be meaningless. We want you to be blessed, God. We want you to be truly honored with our gathering here and our love and devotion to you. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, that can miraculously happen. It's in his name we pray. Amen.